This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Hi, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. First of all, Merry, Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. Merry whatever it is you celebrate. I hope you're having a wonderful day, and... I hope you get to uh, snooze soundly to this Christmassy episode I have for you tonight. But before we get to the bedtime reading, I just want to tell you about a couple new wonderful sponsors we have on Sleepy. Um, so tonight, this episode is proudly sponsored by MedCline. MedCline is a sleep support system, these specially designed cushions that are designed to help with shoulder pain, nighttime acid reflux, and generally just help you sleep better. I'm usually a side sleeper, which means I'll wake up with shoulder pain, and wow, I have loved using MedCline. Their body pillow feels like you're being held and protected. It's so fantastic, and I'm kind of like embarrassed by how much I like it. It's definitely helped my sleep. So, whether or not you suffer from shoulder pain, nighttime acid reflux, or you just want a luxurious but affordable cushion setup, MedCline might work for you. 95% of people using it reported improvement in their sleep quality. It's designed to keep you healthy and pain-free. Their medical-grade gel-infused foam provides cooling comfort all night long. Try it out to rediscover a good night's sleep with a 60-night sleep guarantee. And right now, you get 20% off when you go to medcline.com sleepy. Get 20% off and a better night's sleep today at medcline.com sleepy. I'll put a link for this in the description of the show. 
This episode is also proudly sponsored by our new partner, Innovative Extracts, a veteran-owned CBD company with things to help you sleep real good. And right now, you can receive 40% off your first order by heading to their website. I really love Innovative Extracts CBD gummies and oils. Uh, On the nights I do take them before bed, I sleep through the whole night, which is very rare for me. And there is absolutely no grogginess or fogginess waking up in the morning. Their products are designed to improve your mood, reduce anxiety, give you relief from pain and inflammation. They've got a lot of great, clean and natural products, both for making your nights and days just a little bit more relaxed. So visit their website, www.ie-cbd.com to get 40% off today by using promo code SLEEPY at checkout. I'll also put a link for this in the description of the show. And lastly, this episode is proudly sponsored, of course, by BetterHelp Online Therapy. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com sleepy and start living a better life today. Unfortunately, life does not come with a user manual. So, when life's not working for you, it's very normal to feel stuck. I was stuck for many, many years until I tried out therapy and kept doing it. I obviously can still feel stuck sometimes, but now I have the tools to get unstuck, which years ago... There were times I felt that that was not going to be something that was in the cards for me. But therapy gave me those tools. It changed my life, and I guess I can only say that I wish I did it sooner. Well, BetterHelp is online therapy, where millions of people have been matched with a personalized therapist that works for them. It's convenient, it's accessible, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. So get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash sleepy. That's betterhelp.com slash sleepy. I'll put a link for this in the description of the show. This is usually the time where I thank new patrons on patreon.com, but it's been a long intro so far, so I'm going to just generally thank everyone who is a patron at the moment and read all of our brand new patrons for the last month on the next episode as part of the new year. So thank you all so much who are patrons of the show. It truly means a lot, and I very much hope that you have a Merry Christmas and uh, like the poetry episodes that you get for being patrons. So thanks. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski and the cover-up for Sleepy by Gracie Kana. Well, it is Christmas, and I really hope you're having a fantastic day. Whether or not you celebrate Christmas, hope you're doing something nice with friends, family, whoever makes you happy. Tonight, um, I'm going to be posting a collection of Christmas stories by one of our favorites, Washington Irving. He wrote this delightful collection of 
Christmas stories titled Old Christmas. And uh, I'm going to do a combined episode with a couple readings that I've done from Washington Irving from this um, story collection. And you're going to hear uh, Christmas Eve and then the story Old Christmas. It does not get any Christmasier than this. And uh, I hope that as you're all filled up with cookies and nice holiday meals, that this helps you pass out on the couch, maybe even with a fire going. Today is a day for relaxing and recharging and just being cozy. So I really hope that tonight's reading can be a part of that. So without further ado, Old Christmas by Washington Irving. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Christmas Eve. It was a brilliant, moonlit night, but extremely cold. Our chase whirled rapidly over the frozen ground. The postboy smacked his whip incessantly, and a part of the time the horses were on a gallop. He knows where he is going, said my companion, laughing, and is eager to arrive in time for some of the merriment and good cheer of the servants' hall. My father, you must know, is a bigoted devotee of the old school and prides himself upon keeping up something of old English hospitality. He is a tolerable specimen of what you will rarely meet with nowadays in its purity, the old English country gentleman for our men of fortune spend so much of their time in town and fashion is carried so much into the country that the strong, rich peculiarities of ancient rural life are almost polished away. My father, however, from early years, took Honest Peachum for his textbook instead of Chesterfield. He determined in his own mind that there was no condition more truly honorable and enviable than that of a country gentleman on his paternal lands, and therefore passes the whole of his time on his estate. He is a strenuous advocate for the revival of the old rural games and holiday observances, and is deeply read in the writers, ancient and modern, have treated on the subject. Indeed, his favorite range of reading is among the authors who flourished at least two centuries since, who, he insists, wrote and thought more like true Englishmen than any of their successors. He even regrets sometimes that he had not been born a few centuries earlier when England was itself 
and has peculiar manners and customs. As he lives at some distance from the main road, in rather a lonely part of the country, without any rival gentry near him, he has that most enviable of all blessings to an Englishman, an opportunity of indulging the bent of his own humor without molestation. Being representative of the oldest family in the neighborhood, and a great part of the peasantry being his tenants, he is much looked up to, and in general is known simply by the appellation of the squire, a title which has been accorded to the head of the family since time immemorial. I think it's best to give you these hints about my worthy old father, to prepare you for any little eccentricities that might otherwise appear absurd. We had passed for some time along the wall of the park, and at length the chase stopped at the gate. It was in a heavy, magnificent old style, of iron bars, fancifully wrought at top into flourishes and flowers. The huge square columns that supported the gate were surmounted by the family crest. Close adjoining was the porter's lodge, sheltered under dark fir trees and almost buried in shrubbery. The postboy rang a large porter's bell, which resounded through the still, frosty air, and was answered by the distant barking of dogs with which the mansion house seemed garrisoned. An old woman immediately appeared at the gate. As moonlight fell strongly upon her, I had full view of a little primitive dame, dressed very much in the antique taste, with a neat kerchief and stomacher, and her silver hair peeping from under a cap of snowy whiteness. She came curtsying forth with many expressions of simple joy at seeing her young master. Her husband, it seems, was up at the house keeping Christmas Eve in the servants' hall. They could not do without him, as he was the best hand at a song and story in the household. My friend proposed that we should alight and walk through the park to the hall which was at no great distance, while the chase should follow on. Our road wound through a noble avenue of trees, among the naked branches of which the moon glittered as she rolled through the deep vault of a cloudless sky. The lawn beyond was sheeted with a slight covering of snow, which here and there sparkled as the moonbeams caught a frosty crystal and at a distance might be seen a thin, transparent vapor stealing up from the low grounds and threatening gradually to shroud the landscape. My companion looked round him with transport. How often, said he, have I scampered up this avenue on returning home on school vacations? How often have I played under these trees when a boy I feel a degree of filial reverence for them, 
as we look up to those who have cherished us in childhood. My father was always scrupulous in exacting our holidays and having us around him on family festivals. He used to direct and superintend our games with the strictness that some parents do the studies of their children. He was very particular that we should play the old English games according to their original form and consulted old books for precedent and authority for every time Mary Dispore. Yet I assure you that there never was pedantry so delightful. It was the policy of the good old gentleman to make his children feel that home was the happiest place in the world, and I value this delicious home feeling as one of the choicest gifts a parent can bestow. We were interrupted by the clangor of a troop of dogs of all sorts and sizes. Mongrel, puppy, whelp and hound, and the curs of low degree. That disturbed by the ringing of the porter's bell and the rattling of the chase came bounding open-mouthed across the lawn. The little dogs and all, Trey, Blanche, and Sweetheart, see, they bark at me cried Bracebridge, laughing. At the sound of his voice, the bark was changed into a yelp of delight, and in a moment, he was surrounded and almost overpowered by the caresses of the faithful animals. We had now come in full view of the old family mansion, partly thrown in deep shadow and partly lit up by the cold moonshine. It was an irregular building of some magnitude and seemed to be the architecture of different periods. One wing was, evidently, very ancient with heavy stone-shafted bow windows jutting out and overrun with ivy from among the foliage of which the small diamond-shaped panes of glass glitter with the moonbeams. The rest of the house was in the French taste of Charles II's time, having been repaired and altered, as my friend told me, by one of his ancestors, who returned with that monarch at the Restoration. The grounds about the house were laid out in the old formal manner of artificial flower beds, clipped shrubberies, raised terraces, and heavy stone balustrades, ornamented with urns, a leaden statue or two, and a jet of water. The old gentleman, I was told, was extremely careful to preserve this obsolete finery and all its original state. He admired this fashion in gardening. It had an air of magnificence, was courtly and noble, and befitting good old family style. The boasted imitation of nature and modern gardening had sprung up with modern republican notions, but did not sue a monarchical government. It smacked of the leveling system. I could not help smiling at this introduction of politics into gardening, 
though I expressed some apprehension that I should find the old gentleman rather intolerant in his creed. Frank assured me, however, that it was almost the only instance in which he had never heard his father meddle with politics, and he believed that he had got this notion from a member of parliament who once passed a few weeks with him. The squire was glad of any argument to defend his clipped yew trees and formal terraces, which had been occasionally attacked by modern landscape gardeners. As we approached the house, we heard the sound of music, and now and then a burst of laughter from one end of the building. This, Bracebridge said, must proceed from the servants' hall, where a great deal of revelry was permitted, and even encouraged by the squire throughout the twelve days of Christmas, provided everything was done comfortably to ancient usage. Here were kept up the old games of hoodman blind, shoe the wild mare, hot cockles, steal the white loaf, bob apple and snapdragon. The yule log and Christmas candle were regularly burnt, and the mistletoe, with its white berries, hung up to the imminent peril of all the pretty housemaids. So intent were the servants upon their sports that we had to ring repeatedly before we could make ourselves heard. On our arrival being announced, the squire came out to receive us, accompanied by his two other sons, one a young officer in the army, home on leave of absence, the other in Oxonia, just from the university. The squire was a fine, healthy-looking old gentleman, with silver hair curling lightly round an open, florid countenance, in which a physiognomist, with the advantage, like myself, of a previous hint or two, might discover a singular mixture of whim and benevolence. The family meeting was warm and affectionate, as the evening was far advanced. The squire would not permit us to change our traveling dresses, but ushered us at once to the company, which was assembled in a large, old-fashioned hall. It was composed of different branches of a numerous family connection, where there were usual proportion of old uncles and aunts, comfortably married dames, superannuated spinsters, blooming country cousins, half-fledged striplings, and bright-eyed boarding-school hoydens. They were variously occupied, some at a round game of cards, others conversing around a fireplace. At one end of the hall was a group of young folks, some nearly grown up, others of a more tender and budding age fully engrossed by a merry game and a profusion of wooden horses, penny trumpets, and tattered dolls about the floor showed traces of a troop of little fairy beings who, having frolicked through a happy day, had been carried off to slumber through a peaceful night. 
while the mutual greetings were going on between Bracebridge and his relatives, I had time to scan the apartment. I have called it a hall, for so it had certainly been in old times, and the squire had evidently endeavored to restore it to something of its primitive state. Over the heavy, projecting fireplace was suspended a picture of a warrior in armor, standing by a white horse, and on the opposite wall hung a helmet, buckler, and lance. At one end, an enormous pair of antlers were inserted in the wall, the branches serving as hooks on which to suspend hats, whips, and spurs. And in the corners of the apartment were fowling pieces, fishing rods, and other sporting implements. The furniture was of the cumbrous workmanship of former days, though some articles of modern convenience had been added, and the oaken floor had been carpeted so that the whole presented an odd mixture of parlor and hall. The grate had been removed from the wide, overwhelming fireplace to make way for a fire of wood, in the midst of which was an enormous log glowing and blazing and sending forth a vast volume of light and heat. This, I understood, was the Yule log, with which the squire was particular in having brought in and illuminated on a Christmas Eve according to ancient custom. It was really delightful to see the old squire seated in his hereditary elbow chair by the hospitable fireside of his ancestors and looking around him like the son of a system, beaming warmth and gladness to every heart. Even the very dog that lay stretched at his feet as he lazily shifted his position and yawned, would look fondly up in his master's face, wag his tail against the floor, and stretch himself again to sleep, confident of the kindness and protection. There is an emanation from the heart and genuine hospitality which cannot be described, but is immediately felt, and puts the stranger at once at his ease. I had not been seated many minutes by the comfortable hearth of the worthy cavalier before I found myself as much at home as if I had been one of the family. Supper was announced shortly after our arrival. It was served up in a spacious oaken chamber, the panels of which shone with wax and around which were several family portraits decorated with holly and ivy. Beside the accustomed lights, two great wax tapers, called Christmas candles, wreathed with greens, were placed on a highly polished buffet among the family plate. The table was abundantly spread with substantial fare, but the squire made his supper of frumenty, a dish made of wheat cakes boiled in milk with rich spices. 
a dish made of wheat cakes boiled in milk with rich spices, being a standing dish in old times for Christmas Eve. I was happy to find my old friend, minced pie, in the retinue of the feast, and finding him to be perfectly orthodox, and that I need not be ashamed of my predilection. I greeted him with all the warmth wherewith we usually greet an old and very genteel acquaintance. The mirth of the company was greatly promoted by the humors of an eccentric personage whom Mr. Bracebridge always addressed with a quaint appellation of Master Simon. He was a tight, brisk little man with the air of an errant old bachelor. His nose was shaped like the bill of a parrot, his face slightly pitted with a smallpox, with a dry, perpetual bloom on it like a frostbitten leaf in autumn. He had an eye of great quickness and vivacity, with a drollery and lurking waggery of expression that was irresistible. He was evidently the wit of the family, dealing very much in sly jokes and innuendos with the ladies, and making infinite merriment by harpings upon old themes, which, unfortunately, my ignorance of the family chronicles did not permit me to enjoy. It seemed to be his great delight during supper to give a young girl next to him in a continual agony of stifled laughter, in spite of her awe of the reproving looks of her mother, who sat opposite. Indeed, he was the idol of the younger part of the company, who laughed at everything he said or did at every turn of his countenance. I could not wonder at it, for he must have been a miracle of accomplishments in their eyes. He could imitate Punch and Judy, make an old woman of his hand with the assistance of a burnt cork and pocket handkerchief, and cut an orange into such a ludicrous character that the young folks were ready to die with laughing. I was let briefly into his history by Frank Bracebridge. He was an old bachelor of a small independent income, which by careful management was sufficient for all his wants. He revolved through the family system like a vagrant comet in its orbit, sometimes visiting one branch and sometimes another quite remote, as is often the case with gentlemen of extensive connections and small fortunes in England. He had a chirping, buoyant disposition, always enjoying the present moment, and his frequent change of scene and company prevented his acquiring those rusty, unaccommodating habits with which old bachelors are so uncharitably charged. He was a complete family chronicle, being versed in the genealogy, history, and intermarriages of the whole house of Bracebridge, which made him a great favorite with the old folks. He was a beau of all the elder ladies and superannuated spinsters, among whom he was habitually considered rather a young fellow, and he was a master 
of the revels among the children, so that there was not a more popular being in the sphere in which moved than Mr. Simon Bracebridge. Of late years he had resided almost entirely with the squire, to whom he had become a factotum, and whom he particularly delighted by jumping with his humor in respect to old times, and by having a scrap of an old song to suit every occasion. We had presently a specimen of his last mentioned talent, for no sooner was supper removed and spiced wines and other beverages peculiar to the season introduced, that Master Simon was called on for a good old Christmas song. He bethought himself for a moment, and then, with a sparkle of the eye and a voice that was by no means bad, excepting that it ran occasionally into a falsetto, like the notes of a split reed, he quavered forth a quaint old ditty. Now Christmas has come, let us beat the drum, and call all our neighbors together, and when they appear, let us make them such cheer as will keep out the wind and the weather. The supper had disposed everyone to gaiety, and an old harper was summoned from the servants' hall, where he had been strumming all the evening, and to all appearance comforting himself with some of the squire's homebrewed. He was a kind of hanger-on, I was told, of the establishment, and though ostensibly a resident of the village, was oftener to be found in the squire's kitchen than his own home, the old gentleman being fond of the sound of harp and hall. The dance, like most dances after supper, was a merry one. Some of the older folks joined in it, and the squire himself figured down several couples with a partner with whom he affirmed he had danced at every Christmas for nearly half a century. Master Simon, who seemed to be a kind of connecting link between the old times and the new, and to be withal a little antiquated in the taste of his accomplishments, evidently piqued himself on his dancing, and was endeavoring to gain credit by the heel and toe, rigadoon, and other graces of the ancient school but he had unluckily assorted himself with a little romping girl from boarding school who, by her wild vivacity, kept him continually on the stretch and defeated all his sober attempts at elegance. Such are the ill-assorted matches to which antique gentlemen are unfortunately prone. The young Oxonian, on the contrary, had let out one of his maiden aunts, on whom the rogue played a thousand little knaveries with impunity. He was full of practical jokes, and his delight was to tease his aunts and cousins. Yeah, like all madcap youngsters, he was a universal favorite among the women. The most interesting couple in the dance was the young officer and a ward of the squires, a beautiful, blushing girl of seventeen, from several shy glances which I had noticed in the course of the evening, I suspected that there was a little kindness growing up between them, 
And indeed, the young soldier was just the hero to captivate a romantic girl. He was tall, slender, and handsome, and like most young British officers of late years, had picked up various small accomplishments on the continent. He could talk French and Italian, draw landscapes, sing very tolerably, dance divinely. But above all, he had been wounded at Waterloo. What girl of seventeen, well-read in poetry and romance, could resist such a mirror of chivalry and perfection? The moment the dance was over, he caught up a guitar, and lolling against the old marble fireplace, in an attitude which I am half inclined to suspect was studied, began the little French air of the troubadour. The squire, however, exclaimed against having anything on Christmas Eve but good old English, upon which the young minstrel, casting up his eye for a moment, as if in an effort of memory, struck into another strain, and, with a charming air of gallantry, gave Herrick's night piece to Julia. Her eyes, the glowworm, lend thee, the shooting stars attend thee, and the yells also, whose little eyes glow like the sparks of fire, befriend thee. No will of the wisp mislight thee, nor snake or glowworm bite thee, but on thy way not making a stay, since ghost there is none to affright thee. Then let not the dark thee cumber, what though the moon does slumber, the stars of the night will lend thee their light, like tapers clear without number. Then, Julia, let me woo thee, thus, thus to come unto me, and when I shall meet thy silvery fee, my soul I'll pour into thee. The song might have been intended in compliment to the fair Julia, for so I found his partner was called, or it might not. She, however, was certainly unconscious of any such application, for she never looked at the singer, but kept her eyes cast upon the floor. Her face was suffused, it is true, with a beautiful blush, and there was a gentle heaving of the bosom, but all that was doubtless caused by the exercise of the dance. Indeed, so great was her indifference that she was amusing herself with plucking to pieces a choice bouquet of hothouse flowers, and by the time the song was concluded, the nosegay lay in ruins on the floor. There is nothing in England that exercises a more delightful spell over my imagination than the lingerings of the holiday customs and rural games of former times. They recall the pictures my fancy used to draw in the May morning of life, when as yet I only knew the world through books and believed it to be all that poets had painted it. 
and they bring with them the flavor of those honest days of yore, in which perhaps, with equal fallacy, I am apt to think the world was more homebred, social, and joyous than at present. I regret to say that they are daily growing more and more faint, being gradually worn away by time, but still more obliterated by modern fashion. They resemble those picturesque morsels of Gothic architecture, which we see crumbling in various parts of the country, partly dilapidated by the waste of ages, and partly lost in the additions and alterations of latter days. Poetry, however, clings with cherishing fondness about the rural game and holiday revel from which it has derived so many of its themes. As the ivy winds its rich foliage about the gothic arch and moldering tower, gratefully repaying their support by clasping together their tottering remains and, as it were, embalming them in verdure. Of all the old festivals, however, that of Christmas awakens the strongest and most heartfelt associations. There is a tone of solemn and sacred feeling that blends with our conviviality and lifts the spirit to a state of hallowed and elevated enjoyment. The services of the church about this season are extremely tender and inspiring. They dwell on the beautiful story of the origin of our faith and the pastoral scenes that accompanied its announcement. They gradually increase in fervor and pathos during the season of Advent until they break forth in full jubilee on the morning that brought peace and goodwill to men. I do not know a grander effect of music on the moral feelings than to hear the full choir and the pealing organ performing a Christmas anthem in a cathedral and filling every part of the vast pile with triumphant harmony. It is a beautiful arrangement, also, derived from days of yore, that this festival, which commemorates the announcement of the religion of peace and love, has been made the season for gathering together of family connections and drawing closer again those bands of kindred hearts which the cares and pleasures and sorrows of the world are continually operating to cast loose calling back the children of a family who have launched forth in life and wandered wildly asunder once more to assemble about the paternal hearth that rallying place of the affections there to grow young and loving again among the endearing mementos of childhood there is something in the very season of the year that gives a charm to the festivity of Christmas at other times we derive a great portion of our pleasures from the mere beauties of nature. Our feelings sally forth and dissipate themselves over the sunny landscape, and we live abroad and everywhere. The song of the bird, the murmur of the stream, the breathing fragrance of spring, the soft voluptuousness of summer, the golden plomp of autumn. 
earth with its mantle of refreshing green, and heaven with its deep, delicious blue and its cloudy magnificence, all fill us with mute but exquisite delight, and we revel in the luxury of mere sensation. But in the depth of winter, where nature lies despoiled of every charm and wrapped in her shroud of sheeted snow, we turn for our gratifications to moral sources. The dreariness and desolation of the landscape, the short gloomy days and darksome nights, while they circumscribe our wanderings, shut in our feelings also from rambling abroad and make us more keenly disposed for the pleasures of the social circle. Our thoughts are more concentrated, our friendly sympathies more aroused. We feel more sensibly the charm of each other's society and are brought more closely together by dependence on each other for enjoyment. Heart calleth unto heart, and we draw our pleasures from the deep wells of living kindness which lie in the quiet recesses of our bosoms, and which, when resorted to, furnish forth a pure element of domestic felicity. The pitchy gloom without makes the heart dilate on entering the room filled with the glow and warmth of the evening fire. The ruddy blaze diffuses an artificial summer and sunshine through the room and lights up each countenance into a kindlier welcome. Where does the honest face of hospitality expand into a broader and more cordial smile? Where is the shy glance of love more sweetly eloquent than by the winter fireside? And as the hollow blast of wintry wind rushes from the hall, claps the distant door, whistles about the casement and rumbles down the chimney, what can be more grateful than that feeling of sober and sheltered security with which we look round upon the comfortable chamber in the scene of domestic hilarity. The English, from the great prevalence of rural habits throughout every class of society, have always been fond of those festivals and holidays which agreeably interrupt the stillness of country life. And they were in former days particularly observant of the religious and social rites of Christmas. It is inspiring to read even the dry details which some antiquarians have given of the quaint humors, the burlesque pageants, the complete abandonment to mirth and good fellowship with which this festival was celebrated. It seemed to throw open every door and unlock every heart. They brought the peasant and the peer together and blended all ranks in one warm, generous flow of joy and kindness. The old halls of castles and manor houses resounded with the harp and the Christmas carol, and their ample boards groaned under the weight of hospitality. Even the poorest cottage welcomed the festive season with green decorations of bay and holly. The cheerful fire glanced its rays through the lattice, inviting the passenger to raise the latch and join the gossip knot huddled around the hearth, beguiling the long evening with legendary jokes and oft-told Christmas tales.
One of the least pleasing effects of modern refinement is the havoc it has made among the hearty old holiday customs. It has completely taken off the sharp touchings and spirited reliefs of these embellishments of life and has worn down society into a more smooth and polished but certainly a less characteristic surface. Many of the games and ceremonials of Christmas have entirely disappeared, and like the sherry sack of old Falstaff, are become matters of speculation and dispute among commentators. They flourished in times full of spirit and lustihood, when men enjoyed life roughly, but heartily and vigorously, Times wild and picturesque, which have furnished poetry with its richest materials and the drama with its most attractive variety of characters and manners. The world has become more worldly. There is more of a dissipation and less of enjoyment. Pleasure has expanded into a broader but a shallower stream and has forsaken many of those deep and quiet channels where it flowed sweetly through the calm bosom of domestic life. Society has acquired a more enlightened and elegant tone, but it has lost many of its strong local peculiarities, its homebred feelings, its honest fireside delights. The traditionary customs of golden-hearted antiquity, its feudal hospitalities and lordly wassailing, have passed away with the baronial castles and stately manor houses in which they were celebrated. They comported with the shadowy hall, the great oaken gallery, and the tapestried parlor, but are unfitted to the light showy saloons and gay drawing rooms of the modern villa. Shorn, however, as it is of its ancient and festive honors, Christmas is still a period of delightful excitement in England. It is gratifying to see that home feeling completely aroused which seems to hold so powerful a place in every English bosom. The preparations making on every side for the social board and as again to unite friends and kindred, the presence of good cheer are passing and repassing, those tokens of regard and quickeners of kind feelings. The evergreens distributed about houses and churches, emblems of peace and gladness. All these have the most pleasing effect in producing fond associations and kindling benevolent sympathies. Even the sound of the waits, rude as may be their minstrelsy, breaks upon the mid-watches of a winter night with the effect of perfect harmony. As I have been awakened by them, in that still and solemn hour, when deep sleep falleth upon a man, I have listened with a hushed delight, and connecting them with sacred and joyous occasion, have almost fancied them into another celestial choir, announcing peace and goodwill to mankind. How delightfully the imagination, when wrought upon by these moral influences, turns everything to melody and beauty. The very crowing of the cock, that was sometimes heard in the profound repose of the country, telling the night watches to his feathery dames, 
was thought by the common people to announce the approach of this sacred festival. Some say that ever against the season comes wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated. This bird of dawning singeth all night long, and then they say no spirit dares to her abroad. The nights are wholesome, then no planets strike, no fairy takes, no witch hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is the time. Amidst the general call to happiness, the bustle of the spirits and stir of the affections which prevail at this period, what bosom can remain insensible? It is indeed the season of regenerated feeling, the season for rekindling, not merely the fire of hospitality in the hall, but the genial flame of charity in the heart. The scene of early love again rises green to memory, beyond the sterile waste of years, and the idea of home, fraught with the fragrance of home-dwelling joys, reanimates the drooping spirit, as the Arabian breeze will sometimes waft the freshness of the distant fields to the weary pilgrim of the desert. Stranger and sojourner as I am in the land, though for me no social hearth may blaze, no hospitable roof throw open its doors, nor the warm grasp of friendship welcome me at the threshold. Yet I feel the influence of the season beaming into my soul from the happy looks of those around me. Surely happiness is reflective, like the light of heaven, and every countenance, bright with smiles and glowing with innocent enjoyment, is a mirror transmitting to others the rays of a supreme and ever-shining benevolence. He who can turn churlishly away from contemplating the felicity of his fellow beings and sit down darkling and repining in his loneliness when all around is joyful may have his moments of strong excitement and selfish gratification, but he wants the genial and social sympathies which constitute the charm of a Merry Christmas. The Stagecoach In the preceding paper, I have made some general observations on the Christmas festivities of England and am tempted to illustrate them by some anecdotes of a Christmas past in the country, in pursuing which, I would most courteously invite my reader to lay aside the austerity of wisdom and to put on that genuine holiday spirit which is tolerant of folly and anxious only for amusement. In the course of a December tour in Yorkshire, I rode for a long distance in one of the public coaches on the day preceding Christmas. The coach was crowded both inside and out, with passengers who, by their talk, seemed principally bound to the mansions of relations or friends to eat the Christmas dinner. It was loaded also with hampers of game, and baskets and boxes of delicacies, and hares hung dangling their long ears about the coachman's box, 
Presents from distant friends for the impending feast. I had three fine rosy-cheeked schoolboys for my fellow passengers inside, full of the buxom health and manly spirit which I have observed in the children of this country. They were returning home for the holidays in high glee and promising themselves a world of enjoyment. It was delightful to hear the gigantic plans of pleasure of the little rogues and the impractical feats they were to perform during their six weeks' emancipation from the abhorred thraldom of book, birch, and pedagogue. They were full of anticipations of the meeting with the family and the household, down to the very cat and dog, and of the joy they were to give their little sisters by the presents with which their pockets were cramped, at the meeting to which they seemed to look forward with the greatest impatience was with Bantam, which I found to be a pony, and according to their talk possessed of more virtues than any steed since the days of Bucephalus. How he could trot, how he could run, and then such leaps he would take, there was not a hedge in the whole country that he could not clear. They were under the particular guardianship of the coachman, to whom, whenever an opportunity presented, they addressed a host of questions and pronounced him one of the best fellows in the whole world. Indeed, I could not but notice the more than ordinary air of bustle and importance of the coachman, who wore his hat a little on one side and had a large bunch of Christmas greens stuck in the buttonhole of his coat. He is always a personage full of mighty care and business, but he is particularly so during this season, having so many commissions to execute in consequence of the great interchange of presents. And here, perhaps, it may not be unacceptable to my untraveled readers to have a sketch that may serve as a general representation of this very numerous and important class of functionaries who have addressed a manner, a language, an air peculiar to themselves and prevalent throughout the fraternity, so that wherever an English stage coachman may be seen, he cannot be mistaken for one of any other craft or mystery. He is commonly a broad, full face, curiously mottled with red, as if the blood had been forced by hard feeling into every vessel of the skin. He is swelled into jolly dimensions by frequent potations of malt liquors, and his bulk is still further increased by a multiplicity of coats in which he is buried like a cauliflower, the upper one reaching to his heels. He wears a broad brim, low-crowned hat, a huge roll of colored handkerchief about his neck, knowingly knotted and tucked in at the bosom and has in summertime a large bouquet of flowers in his buttonhole, the present, most probably, of some enamored country lass. His waistcoat is commonly of some bright color, striped, and his small clothes extend far below the knees to meet a pair of jockey boots which reach about halfway up his legs. 
All this costume is maintained with much precision. He has a pride in having his clothes of excellent materials, and notwithstanding the seeming grossness of his appearance, there is still discernible that neatness and propriety of person which is almost inherent in an Englishman. He enjoys great consequence and consideration along the road, as frequent conferences with the village housewives who look upon him as a man of great trust and dependence. He seems to have a good understanding with every bright-eyed country lass. The moment he arrives where the horses are to be changed, he throws down the reins with something of an air and abandons the cattle to the care of the ostler, his duty being merely to drive from one stage to another. When off the box, his hands are thrust in the pockets of his great coat, and he rolls about the inn-yard with an air of the most absolute lordliness. Here he is generally surrounded by an admiring throng of ostlers, stable boys, shoe blacks, and those nameless hangers-on that infest inns and taverns and run errands and do all kinds of odd jobs for the privilege of battening on the drippings of the kitchen and the leakage of the taproom. These all look up to him as to an oracle, treasure up his camp phrases, echo his opinions about horses and other topics of jockey lore, and above all, endeavor to imitate his air and carriage. Every ragamuffin that has a coat to his back thrusts his hands in the pockets, rolls in his gait, talks slang, and is an embryo coachy. Perhaps it might be owing to the pleasing serenity that reigned in my own mind that I fancied I saw cheerfulness in every countenance throughout the journey. A stagecoach, however, carries animation always with it and puts the world in motion as it whirls along. The horn, sounded at the entrance of a village, produces a general bustle. Some hasten forth to meet friends, some with bundles and bandboxes to secure places, and in the hurry of the moment can hardly take leave of the group that accompanies them. In the meantime, the coachman has a world of small commissions to execute. Sometimes he delivers a hare or pheasant, sometimes jerks a small parcel or newspaper to the door of a public house, and sometimes, with knowing leer and words of sly import, hands to some half-blushing, half-laughing housemaid an odd-shaped billet-do from some rustic admirer. As the coach rattles through the village, everyone runs to the window, and you have glances on every side of fresh country faces and blooming, giggling girls. At the corners are assembled juntas of village idlers and wise men who take their stations there for the important purpose of seeing company pass. But the sages not as generally at the blacksmiths, to whom the passing of the coach is an event fruitful of much speculation. The smith, with the horse's heel in his lap, pauses as the vehicle whirls by 
The cyclops round the anvil suspend their ringing hammers and suffer the iron to grow cool. And the sooty specter, in brown paper cap, laboring at the bellows, leans on the handle for a moment and permits the asthmatic engine to heave a long-drawn sigh while he glares through the murky smoke and sulfurous gleams of the smithy. Perhaps the impending holiday might have given more than usual animation to the country, for it seemed to me as if everybody was in good looks and good spirits. Game, poultry, and other luxuries of the table were in brisk circulation in the villages, the grocers, butchers, and fruiterers' shops were thronged with customers. The housewives were stirring briskly about, putting their dwellings in order, and the glossy branches of holly with their bright red berries began to appear at the windows. The scene brought to mind an old writer's account of Christmas preparations. Now capons and hens, besides turkeys, geese, and ducks, with beef and mutton, must all die, for in twelve days a multitude of people will not be fed with a little. Now plums and spice, sugar and honey, squared among pies and broth, now or never, must music be in tune, for the youth must dance and sing to get them a heat, while the age sit by the fire. The country maid leaves half her market, and must be sent again, as she forgets the pack of cards on Christmas Eve. Great is the contention of holly and ivy, whether master or dame wears the breeches. Dice and cards benefit the butler, and if the cook do not lack wit, he will sweetly lick his fingers. I was roused from this fit of luxurious meditation by a shout from my little traveling companions. They had been looking out of the coach windows for the last few miles, recognizing every tree and cottage as they approached home. And now there was a general burst of joy. There's John, and there's old Carlo, and there's Bantam, cried the happy little rogues, clapping their hands. At the end of a lane, there was an old sober-looking servant in livery waiting for them. He was accompanied by a superannuated pointer and by the redoubtable Bantam, a little old rat of a pony with a shaggy mane and long rusty tail who stood dozing quietly by the roadside, little dreaming of the bustling times that awaited him. I was pleased to see the fondness with which the little fellows leaped about the steady old footman and hugged the pointer who wriggled his whole body for joy. But Bantam was the great object of interest. All wanted to mount at once and it was with some difficulty that John arranged that they should ride by turns and the eldest should ride first. Off they set at last one of the pony, with the dog bounding and barking before him, and the others holding John's hands, both talking at once and overpowering him by questions about home 
with school anecdotes. I looked after them with a feeling in which I did not know whether pleasure or melancholy predominated, for I was reminded of those days when, like them, I had neither known care nor sorrow, and a holiday was the summit of earthly felicity. We stopped a few moments afterward to water the horses, and on resuming their route, a turn of the road brought us in sight of a neat country seat. I could just distinguish the forms of a lady and two young girls in the portico, and I saw my little comrades with Bantam, Carlo, and old John trooping along the carriage road. I leaned out of the coach window in hopes of witnessing the happy meeting, but a grove of trees shut it from my sight. In the evening we reached a village where I had determined to pass the night. As we drove into the great gateway of the inn, I saw on one side the light of a rousing kitchen fire beaming through the window. I entered and admired for the hundredth time that picture of convenience, neatness, and broad, honest enjoyment, the kitchen of the English inn. It was of spacious dimensions, hung around with copper and tin vessels highly polished and decorated here and there with a Christmas green. Hams, tongues, and flitches of bacon were suspended from the ceiling. A smokejack made its ceaseless clanking beside the fireplace, and a clock ticked in one corner. A well-sourced deal table extended along one side of the kitchen, with a cold round of beef and other hearty viands upon it over which two foaming tankards of ale seemed mountain guard. Travelers of inferior order were preparing to attack the stout repast, while others sat smoking and gossiping over their ale on two high-backed oaken seats beside the fire. Trim housemaids were hurrying backwards and forwards under the directions of a fresh, bustling landlady but still seizing an occasional moment to exchange a flippant word and have a rallying laugh with the group round the fire. The scene completely realized poor Robin's humble idea of the comforts of midwinter. Now trees, their leafy hats to bear, to reverence winter's silver hair. A handsome hostess, merry host, a pot of veil now and a toast. Tobacco and a good coal fire are things this season doth require. I had not been long at the inn when a post-chaise drove up to the door. A young gentleman stepped out, and by the light of the lamps I caught a glimpse of a countenance which I thought I knew. I moved forward to get a nearer view when his eye caught mine. I was not mistaken. It was Frank Bracebridge, a sprightly, good-humored young fellow with whom I had once traveled on the continent. Our meeting was extremely cordial, for the countenance of an old fellow traveler always brings up the recollection of a thousand pleasant scenes, odd adventures, and excellent jokes. 
to discuss all these in a transient interview at an inn was impossible. And finding that I was not pressed for time and was merely making a tour of observation, he insisted that I should give him a day or two at his father's country seat to which he was going to pass the holidays and which lay at a few miles' distance. It is better than eating a solitary Christmas dinner at an inn, said he, and I can assure you of a hearty welcome in something of the old-fashioned style. His reasoning was cogent, and I must confess the preparation I had seen for universal festivity and social enjoyment had made me feel a little impatient of my loneliness. I closed, therefore, at once with his invitation. The chaise drove up to the door, and in a few moments I was on my way to the family mansion of the Bracebridges. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night, and... Merry Christmas.